we'll have a look at that. Keep your Bibles open so you can check if I'm saying the right thing. And uh, we'll pray, even though we already prayed. Can't pray too much. Father, thank you for your word. It's a challenging word. Give us soft hearts. We pray that you would rearrange things in our hearts now. Grant us repentance. We pray that people might even meet you for the first time, if that's what they need to do. We thank you that you speak. Be glorified in this time. Amen. All right, well, here's a question. Does it matter who you worship? Does it matter how you worship? The great philosopher of our time, Homer Simpson, he said this, Suppose we've chosen the wrong God. Every time we go to church, we're just making him matter and matter. He's got a point, hasn't he? Many would say uh, Buddha, Jesus, Allah, whatever floats your boat, you know. They're just different names for the same thing, aren't they? Now, that's very postmodern, isn't it? And we like to be able to say everyone's right. Islam, on the other hand, is the complete opposite extreme from that. Uh, they would say you have to do it like this. You have to worship Allah. You have to do it five times per day, face this direction. The Quran actually says, it'll come up on the screen, um, if you say Jesus is God, you go to hell. This is from the Quran. They have certainly disbelieved who say Allah is the Messiah, the Son of Mary. Indeed, he who associates others with Allah, Allah has forbidden him paradise, his refuge is a fire. I don't claim to be an expert on um, Islam, but um, I've, I've heard from um, Muslims that that is what it means, what it sounds like it means. So the Bible says Jesus is God, and the Quran says if you say that, or if you believe that, you go to hell. It seems to me that those two things can't both be true. Like whatever is true, the one thing we know isn't true is the postmodern guy that says they're both true. They can't both be true. They're polar opposites. So does it matter who you worship? Does it matter how you worship? Well, this chapter that we've just read is a chapter about idolatry. The word idolatry means worshipping false gods. And I wonder if you caught the, the, the vibe of this passage. It's intense. Verse 8. Have a look at verse 8, chapter 10. We shouldn't commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. It does that a couple of times. Don't do this. They did that. They were killed, verse 9. Don't do this. They did that. They were killed, verse 10. And verse 12, here's his point. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful so that you don't fall. This is an intense passage because it's a warning passage. It's like the labels on cigarette packets. I've heard people from other countries say, like, it'll come up on the screen, but have you noticed how intense cigarette packets are? I've heard people from other countries say they, they cannot believe that this is on the packaging of these products. Now, I think our government has decided that since those warnings are true, it's actually loving to give them to people. Now, the Bible actually doesn't say anything about cigarettes one way or the other, but here it does have a big fat warning label on idolatry. It says idolatry will kill you. Now, I would never think to write the passage the way Paul's written it here. The intensity, the subject, it's not on my radar, which clarifies a bit of what our job is as we read the Bible, doesn't it? It's not our job to take principles from the Bible and put them into our lives. Rather, it's our job to actually understand how the writer sees the world, the inspired Apostle Paul that God sent to tell us about the world. Our job is to see the world the way that he sees the world so that we understand why he wrote the things he wrote the way he wrote them. Do you understand? So it's not our job to take bits of the Bible, put them into our worldview, but rather to take our whole selves and put them into the Bible's worldview. 
and let it shape the way we see reality. And that's how you know you understand a passage because you go, oh yeah, I'd say that too. Because he says, he says idolatry, worshipping wrong, it'll kill you. Our job is to understand how does he see reality that makes him say that. Now, if you've been around church for a while, you might go, yeah, 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 I get that. Other gods aren't the real God. But here's the thing. The Corinthians knew that as well. We saw it two weeks ago in chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 2, um, or sorry, chapter 8, verse 4, they say, we know an idol is nothing. There's no God but one. So Paul knows they know that. And yet he still warns them. So that suggests what to you? It suggests that you can know that other gods aren't real and still fall into idolatry. It suggests this is a real danger for you and I. Now, whenever you read a part of the Bible, you want to put it into its context. Otherwise, you can end up, you can make any part of the Bible say whatever you want it to say. That's not our hunger here at church. We want to hear what God has to say on his own terms. And to do that, you've got to put it into context. So let me give you some context. We're looking at 1 Corinthians. It's a letter. Uh, the Apostle Paul wrote it to a church in a place called Corinth. And it was a messed up church. Instead of that church impacting the world around them, the world around them was impacting the church. And Paul writes to say, don't you realize you're the temple of God? Centuries earlier, prophets predicted a time where God's temple would be glorious and people from all over the world would swarm in to the temple to worship the true God. And Paul says, don't you realize you are that temple? God's done what he said he would do. The Holy Spirit, God himself, lives inside you. You're the temple they prophesied about. And it is glorious. People are flowing into this temple from all over the place. But the thing is, you Corinthians, that's who you are. But you've got a long way to go living up to who you are. That's the book of 1 Corinthians in a nutshell, really. Paul says, don't you realize who you are as a Christian? Live up to it. So in a nutshell, the message of, of 1 Corinthians is this. As God's temple, the topic got cut off this. As God's temple, be united in pure and true worship. So chapters 1 to 4, be united. Chapters 5, 6, 7, in pure worship. And uh, the chapters we're in, 8 to 14, true worship. And um, so that tells you we're in a part of the letter that's focused on, on worshipping tr truly. Uh, and in each of these sections, there's a thing to get rid of and a thing to put on. So chapters 4 to 7, for example, Paul says, get rid of sexual immorality and put on honouring God in your bodies, rightly. And in chapters 8 to 14, Paul says, get rid of worshipping wrong, get rid of idolatry and selfishness, which is worshipping yourself, and instead live for the glory of God. Now, if all that went over your head, here's the point. In this chapter, worshipping God right is a big deal. And so even just the context tells us it matters to God how we worship Him. But one of the funny things as you come to these chapters, 8, 9 and 10, is how much worshipping God right in, is, is reflected in how we treat other people. Chapters 8 and 10 start with um, or deal with really specific issues. Uh, is it okay to eat food that's been offered to idols? So chapter 8, verse 1, now about food sacrificed to idols. You get to the end of chapter 10, he's still on that topic. Uh, chapter, eight, uh, chapter 10, verse 28, if someone says, this has been offered in sacrifice, don't eat it. So it's all on the same topic. And what Pete said last week, it's a sandwich. The bread at each end, that's the specific issue. In the middle, he gives two specific principles to shape how you think about those issues so it's like a ham and cheese sandwich okay last week we saw the ham chapter nine it was don't be selfish there's principle one worshiping god right means laying down my good 
to instead seek the, or laying down what I want to instead seek the good of others. As Christians, we're called to just lay down our desires, our rights, our freedoms, and instead serve one another. That's the ham. This week it's the cheese, chapter 10. Paul picks up the idols themselves and he says, I don't know if you're taking that seriously enough. I don't know if you, you might be misunderstanding the danger that idols are. And so that brings us to chapter 10. There's two parts to this chapter. Chapters, uh, verses 1 to 13, he says, look what happened in the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible. That's got something to say to us. And then the second half of the chapter, he goes back into the practical things, food offered to idols, and then he finishes with a big picture, lots of good verses to memorize, uh, verse 31 and 32. But there's how the chapter works. We're going to zoom in on verses 1 to 14. Now, as we come to it, have you ever wondered why is the Bible such a big book? You know, why do we... The Old Testament, it's so old... And it's so weird and it's so, I don't know, it's just super long, isn't it? It's like two-thirds of the Bible. What would really be lost if we just took you know, minimalism seriously and just got rid of it? You know, A well-known preacher in America, like a very famous preacher, just recently said something like this. He just said, you know, the apostles, they, they kind of distance themselves from the Old Testament to make it easier for people to, to come to know Jesus and we should do that as well. Now the problem with that is verse 11, isn't it? Look at verse 11. These things happened to them in the Old Testament as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. That verse sums up the point he's making in this chapter. Uh, We need the Old Testament. It was written, he says, for us. You might want to underline those words, for us. Let me point something out. Do you notice that it doesn't say these things happened... And then God decided to take those things and use them as an example. It doesn't say that. Instead, it says they happened as examples. As in before they even happened, God planned that it would happen so that we would have examples. In other words, God was the one steering history. He doesn't just take history and turn it into a lesson. No, no, no. He steers history to create the sort of examples we need. That is a big view of God. And... It's a view that says God is sovereign over everything that happens. Every detail, he's guiding it where he wants it to go. And I think if you get a view like, of God like that, it raises all sorts of questions. But I want to say this, when tragedy hits you, no other view of God gives you comfort. Here is the only foundation for comfort in tragedy. God is bigger than it. It hasn't thrown him off course. It hasn't taken him by surprise. He's not scrambling to react. He's got it. And he's working all those details according to his plan. Now, there's more to be said about that. You you might need to talk to one of the pastors here at church. But but this view of God is the only rock in the storm. One of the biggest names for for God in the Bible is rock. In fact, verse 4 says the rock is Christ. Um, He steers all of history. But verse 11 says that there's a place that God's taking the world. It describes us as people who live at the very end of the age. Look at verse 11. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. Culmination. Like uh, where it's all been going. Culmination, like the graduation day is the culmination of your university. We live in the graduation day of history. God planned that you know, the ages would go on 
But there will be a day when he would come into the world in Jesus on a rescue mission to save sinners and bring them home to God. The things that happened in the Old Testament all happened as examples to help us because we live in the pointy end of the universe's existence. And I want to move on, but I want to make two observations about this quickly. Number one, don't ever doubt that God has a purpose and a plan. He's taking this somewhere. And get on board with where he's taking it. But number two, there are some religious groups that will claim they've got a new revelation from God. So Mormons claim this, Muslims claim this, and others, that they'll even say, yeah, 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 the Bible's from God, we, we agree on that, but there's been an update, you know, like you get your updates for your, your iPhone or whatever. There's been a new version of the Bible, and we need to listen to that as well. Now, verse 11 is one of the verses, there's a couple, that helps you see the Bible doesn't expect there to be an update. See, 2,000 years ago, to those people it says that the end of the, the culmination of the ages has already come. They live at the end. God's come to earth himself as a man, Jesus, and he's, he's spoken. That's the final word, Hebrews chapter 1 says. So it doesn't lead you to expect there to be an, an, any additional world. Those guys there, they lived at the end. How much more do we also live at the end? The very next thing, Jesus comes back. Nothing more. When Jesus comes, 1 Thessalonians 4 says, you're not going to miss it. All right. So don't believe the... The, the cults, the religious groups that say, ah, oh, but we've got an update. No, no, no. But verse 11, anyway, we'll get back on track. Verse 11 says that God made all of that happen in the Old Testament and caused it to be written down for us. We've got to read the Old Testament. Do you read the Old Testament? It's really good that last term we went through numbers. It was weird. It was confusing. Actually, it was really helpful for this passage because it refers to it a lot. Here at church, in your own life at home, we've got to be reading the Old Testament. And in particular, in particular, Paul says we've got to be paying attention to what it teaches us about God and about how he sees idolatry. Verse 11 says they were examples. It, by the way, you can't think that when it says examples there, it means things to copy. Because it, it constantly says, no, 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 don't be like them. Some people, when they read the Old Testament, they think this book is terrible because terrible things happen in it. Well, yeah, you're not... It's not telling you that so you'll go and do it. It's telling you that so you'll see, look what humans are like. We are terrible. Learn from that and learn what God's like from that. So don't, don't copy everything you read in the Old Testament. But as we look at Paul's argument here, what we're going to see is this. Here's your big point. Idolatry can stop someone going to heaven, even if you call yourself a Christian. Even if you go to church, you get baptized, you might even take communion. It's possible you can do all of those things and yet still be an idolater, a person who worships false gods. You can still miss out on heaven. Now, it's a heavy word, a scary word for, for people like us, for me, who, who take communion and, and got baptised and now come to church. It's supposed to be a, a scary word. Look at verse 12. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. You might think, well, I prayed the prayer at Rice Rally. I got baptised on Church Weekend Away. I'm good with God, aren't I? You know, like, isn't it once saved, always saved? You can't lose your salvation, can you? Paul says, if you think you're standing firm, be careful so you don't fall. Let's have a look at how Paul gets there, right? So um, verses 1 to 5, he starts talking about the nation Israel, the nation that God rescued from slavery in Egypt to be his people. And the key verse, or the key word in Verses 1 to 5 is the word all. 
Because Paul lists the experiences that all the people of Israel had. So verse 1, they were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. Verse 2 has all, verse 3, then they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. So they were all, all, all. But then, they, so they all went through all these experiences outwardly and yet look at verse 5, nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. They all went through this, but with most of them, God was not pleased. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. It's just like we saw in Numbers last term. Many of them didn't make it into the promised land. Outwardly, they were part of the people of God, and that's his point. Outwardly, a person can look like a Christian, but God might not be pleased. You might not make it into the promised land, into heaven. Do you notice the way Paul takes the events of Israel's history and kind of deliberately draws similarities between them and a Christian equivalent? So you read the book of Exodus, right? And, and God takes his people out of the, the Egypt by parting the Red Sea. They go through the, through the water and they're under a cloud, which is wet as well. So Paul's like, okay, they're underwater and they go through water. It's like they got baptized. And then you remember, if you know the story, they're in the desert and they get hungry and they complain to God and God sends them miraculous bread from miraculously given from God, and then they, they drink water that comes out of a rock. It's kind of like how when we have communion, we got bread and drink. Um, it's actually fascinating, verse 4, as I mentioned, says that they got the water from Christ. There's something to think about. How does that work? But you catch Paul's point, can't you? These guys, outwardly, they were God's people. They got baptized. They had communion in a way. They even had Jesus in their midst in a way. They had all of that. All of them did. And yet many of them didn't make it into the promised land. Instead, they came under the judgment of God. And so Paul says, verse 6, Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. In other words, there's a, there's a danger, a genuine danger, that you might be here. You might get baptized and take communion, but your heart might actually be set on evil things. It could be you now, or it could happen to you sometime in the future. And this example from the Old Testament teaches us that, that if, if that happens to you, you won't be saved. You'll, you'll be under God's judgment. God gave you the life that you've got, and so what makes you think you can turn away from Him and keep it? Brother and sister, let's draw some lessons from this for ourselves First of all, uh, put no confidence in outward signs. You know, it's a good sign you're here. I reckon it's hard to get to church on a Sunday afternoon. It's just rather be at home. <laughs> it's just nice. Then my cozy, you know, your armchair, whatever. But, so it's a good sign that you're here. But it doesn't actually mean you're okay with God, does it? You take communion. Communion is actually meant to reassure your heart. It's a, it's a reminder. And it's supposed to help you reflect on the fact that, yes, I'm part of this. We participate later in the chapter, it goes into that. But when you take communion, it's not supposed to stop you checking your heart, reassure your heart, but not stop you guarding your heart. Never rely on outward signs. What's the inward reality of your heart? Do you trust Christ? Have you turned from your sin in sincerity? Now, let's deal with something. You might have heard people say, once saved, always saved. Who's heard that? Can I get a show of hands if you've heard that phrase? Hey, there you go. It's a wonderful phrase because it captures some wonderful promises that God gives us in the Bible. I'll give you one of them. Jesus said this. It'll come up on the, on the slide. This is the will of him who sent me, Jesus says, 
that I shall lose none of those who he's given me, but raise them up on the last day. There's a bunch of these kinds of promises in the Bible where God promises that if you come to Jesus truly and sincerely, he will hold on to you. He will keep you trusting him to the end. He'll keep you following him. But what do we do with warnings in the Bible like this one is? Now, first of all, you could take it as a call to check that you're actually saved. So it's once saved, always saved, as long as you actually did get saved, if you truly did become a Christian. And so it, that's part of the answer. It is actually worth asking, have I truly repented of my sins and put my trust in Jesus to save me? But it's got to be more than that. And the reason you know it's more than that is because Paul thinks that it's possible he could fall away. That's why we read from the end of chapter 9, because it's actually part of the one section. But look at chapter 9, verse 27, Paul speaking about himself. He says, No, I strike a blow to my body, I make it my slave, so that after I've preached it to others, I myself won't be disqualified for the prize. Now, we know that Paul was a Christian. We can read that off a number of different places in the Bible, but you can read it also off the fact that he wrote like half of the New Testament. So we know Paul was a Christian, but he was aware of a real risk that he could fall away. So how does it work? Well, here's the answer. You can fall away, but you won't. You can fall away, but you won't. How does it work? Well, here's the thing. It's possible that you could walk away from God, but God has promised that he will stop you from doing that, not by putting up some invisible barrier around you, but instead he'll hold on to you by the warnings about the danger. And he'll use those warnings by the power of his Holy Spirit to keep you from doing that, to keep you from walking away. So if you want to picture it, imagine like a cliff edge and staying on top of the cliff is staying in relationship with God. A wrong way to think about once saved, always saved is you could imagine there's a, a glass wall around the edge of the cliff. So you can, you can try your best to run off the cliff and run away from God, but you won't succeed. You'll just keep bouncing off. It's not like that. It's actually like the cliff edge has a bunch of warning signs around the edge of the cliff. that say, warning, cliff, if you go over this, you'll die. And at the bottom of the cliff, it's like your dad is standing there yelling out at you, saying, come back, it's dangerous. And the true child of the father sees the warning signs, hears the voice of the dad, and that keeps him back from the edge of the cliff. Verse 11 says, These things were written down as warnings for us. Now, if it was impossible to fall away from God, the warning in this passage would be meaningless. But they're not meaningless. They're here because they're real. And the way that God will hold on to you is by you hearing it today. And the Holy Spirit will make you fear it and it'll make you run back from the cliff edge, back into his arms. So do you hear the warning today? It's possible that you could do verse 6. You could set your heart on evil like Israel did and fail to reach the promised land like Israel did. Verses 7 to 10 spell out four ways that might happen for you. And there's a pattern, as I said, they all start with don't do X, Israel did X and they died. The four ways are idolatry, sexual immorality, verse 8, testing Christ, verse 9, and grumbling, verse 10. 
But actually, they're not four separate ways. They're all connected to that first one, idolatry. How do I know that? Well, number one, it starts with idolatry, verse 7, and it ends with idolatry, verse 14. Whenever you see that kind of pattern in the Bible, usually it's a clue that the whole thing's about that topic. Number two, it fits with the big picture of what this chapter's about, like we saw at the start, food offered to idols. But here's a kicker. When you look into the sexual immorality one in verse 8, you trace it back, it actually refers to an event in Numbers 25 where the passage there links sexual immorality with idolatry. Verse 1, in Numbers 25, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with the Moabite women. Verse 2, who invited them to the sacrifices of their gods. So there the sexual sin seems to lead them to idolatry. They're bound together. So that's where I think you see that this passage is bigger than just bowing down to a statue. Idolatry, worshipping false gods, is actually about what you love. It's about your desires. You know, the guy gets a girlfriend and you know, his mates might say about him, oh, he's, he's so in love with that girl, he, he worships her. You know, There's other phrases I use as well, but worship, worship is, is like that, isn't it? It's about what you love, it's what you set your heart on. And so idolatry is, is loving things more than God. I'll give you a good quote from an old Christian thinker, Martin Luther. Whatever your heart clings to and relies on, primarily, that is your God. What is it that your thoughts love to drift to most? When you're in the shower, you just, you're finally not looking at your phone. Where do your thoughts go? You're on the train and you, find, you don't have any reception, so you have to think for a second. Where do your thoughts love to go? What do you fear losing most? What do you long for most? Those things may not be idols, but they might be might give you an indication of at least where you'd be tempted towards idolatry. Jesus says the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, more than anything else. There's two ways you can get this wrong. On the one hand, there's idolatry. On the other hand, there's asceticism, which is the idea that everything is bad except God. So we not, it's, not, it's not okay to enjoy food, it's not okay to have hobbies, it's not okay to enjoy your friendships. That's wrong. Asceticism is, it, it, it minimizes the goodness of the world that God made. And that dishonors God in its own way. So don't, don't swing too far. Don't go, oh, I'm not allowed to think about anything else. I'm not allowed to love anything else. I've got to be an ascetic. But I don't think that's our danger. I think our danger is the other one. That we'll go, the stuff God made is so good, I'm going to turn it into God for me. You put God... You put anything else in God's place, that's idolatry. Maybe you're thinking, okay, yeah, that makes sense. But hell? Death? Isn't that a bit of an extreme reaction? Why is idolatry such a big deal? Well, we've got to see it from God's perspective. So imagine this. Imagine I bought um, my wife some, some really nice presents. Imagine I bought her like, some really expensive clothes, not just from Kmart, but from where other people shop. I don't know the other shops. Um, imagine I bought her some perfume, again, not from the discount aisle, but from the, the one they need the key. And imagine I bought her some, some jewellery. I don't even know where <laughs> jewellery comes from. Um, but it, and imagine we, we, we bought all this and um, we set aside a night so we could go on this really good date, book the restaurant and everything. And then I come home from a day at work where I was working hard to pay off these gifts and I was looking forward to hanging out with her and I discover she's not home. She's gotten dressed up in all of that stuff and she's gone out to a nightclub and she's using those gifts that I've given her to attract the attention of other men. 
In fact, to flirt with them, go home with them, sleep with them. Shocking. Now, Monique wouldn't do that to me. <laughs> right? <laughs> but don't, we do that to God, don't we? When God showers his gifts on us, and instead of loving him, we use those gifts to chase anything but him, to chase our own desires. It's one thing to do it to your husband or wife. It's more serious by far to do it to the infinitely perfect and good God uh, who made you, who rules the universe. Ultimately, God thinks it's serious enough to send people to hell. Now, if you think the world is basically centred around human beings, which everyone in our world does, it's the air we breathe, then nothing could actually be serious enough to send a person to hell. Because a human being suffering is the worst thing that can happen. A human suffering for eternity, that's the most unimaginably terrible thing that could happen. But do you see that seeing the world as basically being about humans is actually idolatry? It's not about us. We've got to get Paul's worldview here. The world is fundamentally about God. The most unimaginably terrible thing that could happen is not human suffering. It's God being dishonoured. It's the creator of all things being treated like he matters less than the stuff he made. So if you just take this passage and try and add it into your worldview, it doesn't make sense. The only way this passage makes sense is to completely flip our worldview, to flip the way we see the world and to see that we're not the centre. Our desires aren't the centre. All of humanity combined is not the centre. God and his glory is rightfully the centre. We, we don't have time to go into why that's a good thing, but it is a good thing. And it's loving of God to call our attention to it. You see, we're standing in front of Niagara Falls looking at a photo of ourselves on our mobile phone. We're missing the majestic view that we could have because we're focused on lesser things. We're on a date with our wife, but we're looking at our phone. And out of love, God says, put down your phone, look up, look at me. And out of holiness, he says, and I won't let my glory be trampled forever. Be warned. I don't take it lightly. Don't take it lightly. And we need to hear this warning. It actually might be that you are in danger of worshipping other gods. Maybe someone's knocked on your door. Maybe you're in danger of worshipping Mary or Buddha or Allah. Don't go there. The God of the Bible, the triune God, Father, Son and Spirit, He alone is God. Worship Him. Don't have anything... The rest of the chapter, Paul's going to do something really funny. In chapter 8, he, he agreed that idols have... You've got freedom. If you want to eat meat offered to idols, do it. But the rest of this chapter, he'll go into, yeah, that's true, but actually don't do it if there's any chance that it might give the suspicion that you have something to do with idolatry. It's just not worth it. Stay away from it. So maybe actually that's something you need to hear, that whatever it is, if it's got the whiff of idolatry about it, of other gods about it, don't, don't go near it. But maybe that's not your danger. Maybe you know there's no other god. Like the Corinthians, who uh, chapter 8 suggests they knew that. Maybe you need to hear what I, I take it Paul's trying to get them to see is their own desires can be their gods, can't they? 
Do you know um, the song Hosier? Take, oh, that's the artist. The song is Take Me to Church. Who knows the song? A couple of years. I was at a family gathering yesterday and no one knew it. Oh, this illustration is going to bomb. Take me to church. I'll worship like a dog at the shrine of your life. I can't sing. I'm sorry. But yeah. um, you know he's not singing about church, don't you? Maybe this is news to you. He's singing about something different. I'll read a bit. My church offers no absolute. This is lyrics from the song. My church offers no absolution. Tells me worship in the bedroom. You just got it. The only heaven I'll be sent to is when I'm alone with you. It's sweet, sort of, except that it's idolatry, isn't it? I'll worship in the bedroom. And Hosea's right. That, for a lot of people, for our world, is probably the main religion. We worship in the bedroom. Don't miss the connection in this passage between sexual sin and idolatry. The two go to the same parties. In fact, sexual sin is a choice to worship the created thing of, of my desires and that body more than God. I read an article recently, um, actually one of you guys shared it, it was helpful that they, you shared it, um, where it suggested that if a person refuses to stop looking at pornography, they could go to hell. What do you think? Is that article right? Well, it's complex, I think, and if this is your situation, which it is actually for many Christians, uh, you want to get advice and you want to get the wisdom of other people because there is a big difference between the person who's fighting against pornography but is, is finding it hard to get rid of it because it's pernicious. But chapter 10, I think, would say, and you, t- you have to work out if you agree with this, that if that person hears the warning of Scripture but deep down they love their own desires and so they don't really fight the sin, instead they secretly give it room, it is possible. That's not just sexual sin. There's lots of things that might be idols. Calvin says that human nature is a perpetual factory of idols. Might be your job. For Australia, if it's not sex, it's family. Or the weekend. The hobby. The person. What is it? What, what are your most dangerous spheres? Well, what do we do with it? Let me move towards application. I've got four things. Number one, fear. I'm, so, it's, I'm sorry this has been intense, but it's an intense passage, isn't it? And that's actually good for us. The Bible says that fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I don't know if you've got friends that have no fear. They're dangerous people. <laughs> they're a danger to themselves. They're a danger to other people. I wouldn't drive with a person who didn't have a little bit of fear, right? It's good to fear. It's good to fear. So recognize the eternal realities that are at stake for yourself and for others around you. Don't go into idolatry and don't do things that might lead others to idolatry. And so verse 14 says, instead, flee. Flee from idolatry. There's an approach to the Christian life that makes it its aim to try to get as close to sin as possible but still make it into heaven. Your goal is to basically have as much of what the non-Christian has as possible without actually being a non-Christian. That's craziness. Verse 14 says, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Flee. Flee. Run the opposite direction. 
The person who's covered in petrol shouldn't try to see how close they can get to the fire without getting burnt. We must be people who pay attention to our hearts, who spot the, the idols as they start to, to take root and then who, who run. How do you run? You draw near to Jesus. You confess it to him. You might confess it to other Christians who can help you. You pray. And then you take practical steps to remove yourself from temptation. In other words, you practice sincere repentance. There's number two, flee. Number three, fight. Because you are still going to fight tempta- uh, to face temptation. I do. <laughs> I do. And, and verse 13, very helpful. It, it says you're normal. No temptation has overtaken you except what's common to mankind. You're not worse than other people. The fact that you feel tempted, that in itself is not defeat. In fact, many Christians get discouraged because they feel like they struggle so much. I want to encourage you. The fact that you find this a struggle is a good sign. That probably means you're not content to live in idolatry and so you're fighting. And fighting is hard work. You know the person that ought to fear? It's the person who doesn't find it a struggle. It's the person who thinks Christian life's easy. I'm just drifting along. Not hard. Well, that possibly suggests that you're giving into your own desires all the time. That's why it's not hard. So if you find it a struggle, be encouraged. That's normal. And hear the promise as we go into the rest of verse 13. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he'll provide a way out so you can endure it. Now, this verse often gets misquoted. It's not saying God will never give you more than you can bear in life. There are Christians out there who will tell you that's not true. God did give them more than they could bear. There are Christians who died for being Christians. That's more than you can bear. What this verse is promising is that even in those situations, whether or not we can handle them, God will be with us and we won't have to sin in those situations. He's promising that every temptation to sin has within that circumstance a way out, a way to say no, a way to get help. I think sometimes it can be hard to see it, but actually the first step is knowing that it is there because I find it hard to believe. When I'm getting tempted to sin, I sometimes think there's just no hope. I'm just going to do it. And so I'm not looking for the way out. But if you're convinced God has given me a way out here without giving in, you start looking for it and you might even start get, get creative. You text a friend or call them. You ask for prayer. My friend threw his mobile phone into the ocean because he was tempted by it to sin. That's crazy, isn't it? Or is it? I've been thinking maybe everyone who thinks he's crazy is crazy because he he gets the reality of sin. Oh, it's just a mobile phone. Chuck it in the ocean. There's always a way out. Drastic, but it worked. Hey, the point is, I've been convicted personally from this passage, as well as the need to fear idolatry, I need to believe that there's a way out in sin and I need to look for it. So fear, flee, fight. Here's the last one, forgiveness. I've bought a hard word tonight. Warnings usually are hard. The, the warning on the cigarette packet doesn't pull any punches. It says it'll kill you. It does matter who you worship and does matter how. So I actually don't want to rush too quickly to forgiveness. I actually want us to think, what is it in my heart that I need to fear and flee and fight? But the message of the Bible doesn't end there. It's a message about a God who, despite our perpetual idolatry, 
died on the cross to wash away our sins. And he says to you, if you're here, he says, I know you've sinned, but I've paid for it. He says, come to me, all who are weak and heavy burdened. I'll give you rest. I'll give rest for your souls. Trust in me and all will be forgiven. Now, persist in idolatry. You won't enter heaven. But turn your back on it and come to me. All will be forgiven. You know, he knows there's going to be idols. He knows your heart is an idol factory. And he, he says, I love you. And I'll forgive you, not just for your past idols, but for the ones that, are, that keep trying to pop up like whack-a-mole in the present and for the ones that will keep trying to pop up like whack-a-mole in the future. I'll forgive you for all of that. The one thing you mustn't imagine is that you can have both. To come to Jesus is to burn your idols. And tomorrow, when you find new idols starting to pop up, to burn them as well. And instead, to, to worship God purely, truly. Verse 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, doing it all for the glory of God. That's the alternative a new motive, a new outcome you're seeking. Sometimes people think, I can do everything I used to do, but now, I've got to, I'm, now I'm doing it for God's glory. I think actually it means sometimes you have to change what you were doing because that thing wasn't bringing God glory. This thing will glorify Him more. But whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you do it all for the glory of God, which means, verse 32, you won't cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews or Greeks. Verse 33, you'll seek the good of everyone, including that they might be saved. That glorifies God. And Paul says, follow my example. All right, well, let's wrap up. Today, you might, need to, you might need to become a Christian and come to Jesus as Savior and true God for the first time. Or you might need to repent. <laughs> in fact, Christian life is constant repentance. So join with me to pray, in prayer. Father, we, we thank you for this word. And we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you are the centre of the universe. You're majestic and glorious. And the more we see you at the centre, the more life makes sense and the more joy that we have and the more we feel small and humbled and treat other people right. Thank you that you call us from our idolatry. Please forgive us and please help us to burn our idols daily, to fear them, to flee from them, to fight them. And especially we thank you for forgiveness. Amen.